As Jesus hung on the cross about to die, he spoke seven times. Seven statements that have echoed now through two millennia and still speak to us today. Jesus had no inscription written on his tomb because, well, he wouldn't be there that long. The words that he spoke while dying on that cross were his tombstone. These are the words that he wanted left ringing in our ears. Every word that Jesus said on that cross required him to place all of his weight on his two feet that were nailed to the cross and then lift himself up so that he could get enough air into his lungs in order to speak. Part of the torture of crucifixion was the inability to get a good breath. And so these words were not only carefully chosen, they were very painfully spoken. And in seven weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to consider each of these seven statements. From early on, the church has referred to the season that starts this Wednesday and the weeks leading up to Easter as the season of Lent. It is a season of preparation whereby we prepare our hearts to celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday. So here at Seabreeze, we're going to prepare our hearts by considering each of the statements that Jesus made in the six hours in which he hung on that cross. Today we begin with this statement. It's found in Luke 23:34. Now remember, Jesus had to, great pain to push himself up to get the oxygen to say these words. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now the crucifixion of Jesus was, of course, an incredible injustice. He had done nothing wrong. He had broken no law. He had simply taught and healed and performed miracles and loved people. He did, of course, confront those who were using religion as a cover-up for their greedy and power-hungry lives. And these individuals were threatened by his words and by his rising popularity, so they decided to get rid of him. They used the Roman justice system to falsely accuse and then condemn him. He was first beaten until the blood flowed. The crowd that had been whipped into a frenzy on that day, a frenzy of rage, surrounded the cross, and actually as he proceeded with this cross to the site of the crucifixion, they surrounded him and they spit on him and they mocked him while he hung on that cross. Now, unlike us who often cannot do as much as we'd like to do about all of the injustice we face, Jesus had legions of angels at his command. One simple statement, and justice would have been done. So why didn't he use them to stop this tremendous injustice? Well, it's because justice now has three problems. And these three problems are identified in that statement of forgiveness that Jesus offered on the cross. The first problem that justice has is a distraction problem. In addition to, if you're taking notes, the the fill in the blank with the word distraction, I want you also to put the word no after justice. Justice now has a distraction problem. Won't always be a problem for justice, but now in this life, justice can very easily be a distraction. And that's because it distracts us from what is God's main focus right now, which is forgiveness. This wasn't the first time that Jesus, of course, had talked about forgiveness. He spoke of it often. For example, in Luke 6, 37, in one of the most famous statements of forgiveness that he said, he said, forgive and you will be forgiven. 
Now, we, we tend to hear this statement in particular as a, a veiled threat. You know, if you want to be forgiven, then you better forgive. But what Jesus was really saying in this statement is he was handing us, in a sense, a, a pair of bolt cutters to be used to free us from the chains that are constructed whenever wrong is done to us. The word forgive means to set free, to release, or to let go. So in a broken world full of broken people, we are going to be wronged. People will sin against us. They will damage us deeply sometimes. And whenever that happens, the hurt that comes from it, the anger that arises out of it, the damage that follows from it is attached to us. In a sense, there are invisible but very real kind of chains that are attached to the wrong that's done to us. And we, we then drag this with us into the future. And so what Jesus is really saying when he says, forgiven, you'll be forgiven, really what he's saying is, if you want to be set free, then set them free. That's how you cut the chain. Now, there really are only two possible solutions that can free us from the wrong that is done to us. Those two are justice or forgiveness. Those are the two options, either justice or forgiveness. Now, justice, of course, is our preference. It's our first choice. It's the one that feels right, and it is right. Justice feels possible to accomplish, but it turns out that it really isn't in this life. I mean, even if the person who has wronged you is caught and they get all that you think they deserve, it still doesn't remove the hurt and the scars that probably linger from that hurt that they've caused. It doesn't suddenly remove all of the damage that they've done. It helps, but it's never complete. It's never all the way over. So it feels possible to accomplish, justice does, but it, it just isn't. Forgiveness, on the other hand, feels absolutely impossible to accomplish, but it turns out it isn't. Very hard, but not impossible. So this seems like kind of an either-or decision. Either we pursue justice in the matter or we pursue forgiveness. But with God, this is not an either-or decision. It's more about priority and timing with God. Both are important. But right now, God's top priority is forgiveness. That doesn't mean there is no justice, and he doesn't care about justice, but that's not the top focus. That's not the top priority. That's why so much wrong goes unpunished. It's not God's top focus. In the future, justice will be God's top priority. So Jesus, as he was hanging on that cross... He was not suggesting by his example, by what he said to these soldiers and the crowd around him, he wasn't suggesting that we just do away with all justice in favor of forgiveness. He wasn't suggesting that we throw out the judicial system and just forgive everybody for everything. No, justice is still important. Justice is still needed. His personal offer of forgiveness to these soldiers pointed to the fact that justice is not his biggest goal in this life. This is not God's top pursuit. Justice, as I said, will be the top agenda in the next life. Then, God says, is when he will, he will make every wrong right. Justice will be done. 
And so Jesus came first to this world as Savior, as forgiver. That's, that was his mission. That was his focus. His next visit, he says, he will come as judge. Not Savior, but judge. But right now, God's main goal is forgiveness, to repair our broken relationship with him. The only way that can happen is through what Jesus did. That was his mission. Jesus is the only one to pay the full price for our sin that the justice of God demands. We tend to think of the wrong that's done to us and vastly underestimate the wrong that we have done and the justice that's crying out against us. Jesus paid the price of that. So in the next life, we will live out what we've decided about Jesus in this life, either to accept his payment of justice or to go it alone. So if in this life we decide to ignore Jesus and go our own way, then in the next life, God will honor that decision. And he will allow the separation between us and him to become permanent. That's why God's grace is such a big deal and a big focus right now. Because this is the one and only window of God's grace. And that window is closing day by day. But the problem for us is it's really easy to miss God's grace because we get fixated on the wrong that's done to us and the justice that we demand in light of it. And so we, we focus on the sin and we miss the grace that really should be getting our attention now. Hebrews 12, 15 <clears throat> talks about this great miss. It says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. It starts out by saying see to it, which means it's going to have to take some effort on your part in order to recognize God's grace. It's not going to happen automatically. You're not just going to stumble upon God's grace. You're going to have to intentionally look for it and focus on it. But how could anybody miss something as amazing and powerful of, as God's grace and, and his forgiveness gift? Well, the reason is they're distracted by something else. What? Bitterness. That's the distraction that it talks about here. Why bitterness? Well, where is it that the grace of God is present? Where does it show up whenever sin is present? The grace of God is not needed when there's no sin because the grace of God, by definition, is God's forgiveness and his power to redeem sin. So if there's no sin, there's no need for God's grace. So in the location where God's grace is present is the same location where sin is present, where wrong has been done. And where there's sin, there's hurt, and there's damage, and there's anger. And that demands justice. And so the demands of justice come rushing into our hearts, and we keep prosecuting our case against the person, and bitterness begins to fill in our hearts because as I said, justice is a distraction, and we'll look in a little bit of the fact that it's really hard to accomplish. And so we get angrier and angrier and more and more mad, and bitterness begins to flavor our heart. And as a result, we don't notice the grace of God that's standing right there, ready to forgive, ready to redeem the wrong that's done. 
because we're consumed with bitterness. My wife and I got a chance to to visit Florence, Italy about 20 years ago. When we got back, the top question we were asked is what we thought about Michelangelo's famous statue of David. That's in Florence. And I'm embarrassed to say we didn't know it was in Florence. And so we never saw it. We missed it. That is a big miss. To travel all the way to Florence and miss the most famous piece of art probably in the world. I mean, many agree that this work of art is Michelangelo's greatest achievement. So if we ever get back to Florence, and I don't know if we ever will, that's going to be our first stop. Okay, we know it's there now. And we're not going to miss it again. Now, I, I say this because when it comes to amazing works of art, there's nothing like the grace of God. The greatest work of God is his grace. I mean, what God is able to do, not just with a piece of marble, but with flawed lives like ours and the people who wrong us, what God is able to do with sin whenever it's turned over to him, when it's confessed, is nothing short of a, mir- a miracle. But in the presence of sin, we tend to not look for grace because we're too busy pursuing justice. And that pursuit grows into a bitter root, as it talks about here. A root does what? It grows and expands underground, and then what does it do? It pops up other places. It causes trouble. Someone who's bitter, they eventually wrong somebody else, and then that causes more bitterness, and that person wrongs somebody else, and pretty soon this root is popping up everywhere, and it's defiling not just the person, but the people that are coming in contact with the person. It's defiling many. You know what my top memory of Florence is? It's the bad shower that we had in our hotel room. That's, now, I remember other things. We did go see some amazing things in Florence, but honestly, when you say Florence to me, that's one of the first things that pops in my mind is every morning I got mad at that stupid shower. How pathetic is that? To travel all the way to one of the most amazing places in the world, and to come back with a memory of that stupid shower. Well, that's really what it's like when we get into bitterness. You know, I I can imagine an, an angel in heaven talking to us about, so what was it like to live and and be in the place, the one and only place where God's grace was on display? Because in heaven, there's gonna be no God's grace because there's no sin. And all we have to come away with from our memory of the time here is all the people that did us wrong. What a mess. So whenever sin is present, we're on holy ground because grace is standing right there. Don't miss it. Don't get distracted by bitterness. The second problem that justice has that is pointed to in what Jesus said on the cross is that justice now has a payment problem. It has a distraction problem. It also has a payment problem. So Jesus looked down on the soldiers who nailed him there and said, Father, forgive them. Why Father, forgive them? They had not nailed the Father to the cross. They had pounded the nails into Jesus's wrists and into his feet. So why didn't Jesus say, I forgive you? Why, Father, 
forgive you. This is a very important point that Jesus was making. This is not just delusional, losing his mind moment. No, these are very carefully selected words. The reason Jesus didn't say, I forgive you, and said, Father, forgive them, is because this wrong that was being done to him is like every wrong that's done. It's never contained to just the moment it occurs or just the people that are wronged. Every sin, from what the soldiers did to Jesus to what we do each other and what other people do to us, every sin sets in motion. It's the first of a set of dominoes that sets in motion a problem, an impact that ripples forward in time and outward in impact. And it all eventually ends up at the feet of God the Father. Every sin does. And that's why justice now, whatever human justice we're able to come up with, it can never fully pay for that mess. It can never clean up that mess. So Jesus said, Father, forgive them. One of the verses that describes the payment problem and the mess problem of sin is 2 Samuel 14, 14. Here's what it says. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. What this verse is pointing to is three problems that cannot be reversed. The first two problems are an image or an analogy or an illustration of the last problem. Here's the three problems that are mentioned. The first problem that you can't reverse is water spilled on the ground. The second problem that you can't reverse is death. And they both point to the third problem that we can't reverse, and that is being estranged from God, our break with God caused by our sin. So the point is this. We can't just say sorry and fix the sin problem because it's like pouring water on the ground. You can't just say sorry and have the water immediately reverse and go back into the container. You know, if I had a cup of water up here, and I thought of doing this, but I didn't want to make the mess. But if I had a cup of water up here and I poured it out, there's no way I'm getting that poured out water back into the glass. I mean, if I had a towel and some sponges, I might be able to mop up some of it quickly and get some of it back in, but not all of it. But this is talking about pouring water on the ground. If I go outside, find a piece of dirt and pour it on the dirt, I'm getting none of that water back in the glass. Is it? It seeps in. It's gone. I can't reverse that process. That's the same problem that we have with sin. Its impact immediately seeps beyond the event and the person and ultimately banishes us from the presence of God. Why? It's because it's his law that we've broken. We may have broken it against a person, but it's his law. And it's ultimately against him. You know, our justice system recognizes the larger impact of wrongdoing, of sin, whenever it picks the name of a criminal trial. What's the name of a criminal trial? Let's take the famous one, O.J. Simpson. It is the people versus O.J. Simpson. It's not the victim. Why not the victim? Why not Nicole Brown Simpson, who was murdered, versus O.J. Simpson? 
Why the people? Why the people of the state of California? It's because the crime isn't just against the victim. Our justice system recognizes that. It's also against the people who wrote the law. In this case, against murder. But it doesn't just stop with the people. Because there's a lawmaker, especially when it comes to something like murder, that goes beyond just what the state of California thinks. That's God's law. He's the ultimate lawmaker, higher than all human laws. And so every wrong that's done is ultimately against him. So let's say, for example, I say something harsh or rude to my wife. It feels like the issue is just between her and me. But if there was a case file on that wrong that I just did, it would literally read God versus Bevan. Not Rebecca versus Bevan. That's what it feels like, but ultimately it's God versus Bevan. It's his laws that I've broken. He's the one in his word that has said that I need to treat my wife with gentleness and respect. It's his laws that I've broken. Now, I do have to clear up my relationship with her. There is work to be done there. But I have a bigger problem than just that. I have a God and me problem. And that turns out to be a water-on-the-ground kind of problem, a dying kind of problem. I can't undo it. I can't reverse that. Because sin separates us from God. And that is an eternal kind of death. Because my soul is eternal and God is eternal. Now, thankfully, as it says in this verse, God has devised a way so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. This is pointing to Jesus on a cross. Hundreds of years before that happened. How did, how did God figure out a way to undo this banishment so that we don't have to remain estranged from him, separated from him? He did it by undoing death, which until that point had, was not undoable. You, I mean, you couldn't undo death. He died on the cross and rose three days later. Accepting the eternal kind of life that he now freely offers is the only way to unwind our sin. The only way to undo water on the ground, death, and sin. But justice now also has a third problem. Justice now has a conscience problem. A conscience problem. What that means is we can sin and not feel guilty about it. That's what Jesus is referring to with these soldiers. For they do not know what they are doing. Do you find that to be hard to believe? I do. What that's saying is, I mean, I would imagine these soldiers had nailed a number of people to the cross where the point their heart was probably hardened to this kind of stuff. They didn't know what they were doing, Jesus says. So what that means is they didn't ask for forgiveness. The soldiers did not ask for forgiveness. Their conscience didn't prompt them to recognize the wrong they were doing because they didn't know what they were doing. They were doing an awful thing and didn't feel bad about it. Isn't that amazing? Well, it happens all the time, doesn't it? 
They're not the only ones that do wrong and have no clue. I mean, just think about the people that have wronged you deeply. Do they fully see what they have done to you and feel bad about it? Some of them do, right? And those that do have come to you, admitted the wrong they've done, and they've asked you for forgiveness. Now, if the hurt was really deep, it's probably still hard to forgive. But it's so much easier to forgive if someone acknowledges they're wrong and they ask for forgiveness. But here's the problem. Many don't. Maybe they blame you for whatever the conflict was. Or maybe they blame somebody else. Or maybe, which is most common, they just don't get it. They have no idea what they did. That's when it gets really, really hard to forgive. And that's why Jesus set the example in this. Now, Jesus here is not offering an excuse for being unaware of sin. He's not saying that we'll be able to stand before God in the end and say, oh, I didn't know about that. And God will say, oh, well, as long as you didn't know, you're good to go. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is pointing to is a problem. He's stating a problem. The problem is most people are like the soldiers. Not nailing people to a cross, but doing all kinds of damage and They're just clueless. They don't get it. They're very unaware of their sin. In fact, we are pretty unaware of a lot of our sin. So the question then is, how can we best help each other become aware of sin? Because if you're not aware of sin, then you can't seek the forgiveness and the grace of God. If you think you're okay, again, why do you need God's grace? So awareness of sin is really an important part of accepting God's grace. So how do we help each other with this? Well, God has a plan A and a plan B for helping each other see our sin. Plan A is called reconciled forgiveness. Reconciled forgiveness. What reconciled forgiveness is, someone sins against you, you go to them kindly and tell them what they've done. If they see it, If they agree, you know what? You're right. I did do that, and that was wrong. And they ask you for forgiveness. Well, now the relationship is reconciled. It's not just forgiven. You grant forgiveness. They've asked for it, but now the relationship is put back together again. Trust was damaged when the wrong was done, but now because they've admitted the wrong they've done and they've asked for your forgiveness, well, now trust can be rebuilt over time. That's the best plan. That's why this is plan A. If if you can do plan A, do plan A. But what if they don't see it, which is pretty common? What if you go to them and say, you know that what you said was really hurtful, what you did was really damaging to me? What, What if you do that and they say, no, I didn't? Or, but what about you, what you did? And you consider, and you you say, you know what? Yeah, I did do that. Would you forgive me? And they say, sure. And you're waiting for them and you, and they don't. What do you do then? Well, that's plan B. That's called unreconciled forgiveness. Still forgiveness, but the relationship isn't reconciled. What do you do with forgiveness? You let it go. You stop prosecuting. 
you stop bringing it up. And most importantly, in your heart of hearts, you stop ruminating on it. You let it go. Every time it comes up, you say, Father, I've forgiven them. Help me to keep forgiving them. You let it go. Because if you don't, if you don't get the bolt cutters out and cut the chain, you're going to be, you're going to be dragging bitterness with you through life. And you're, you're going to end up going to Florence and remembering the cold showers and nothing more. <laughs> That'll be a waste. And not only will you miss the grace of God, because you keep being mad at them, because you keep bringing this up, the chances of them seeing their own sin get less and less. I mean, what happens if you bring up something to someone else that did wrong and they deny it and they defend themselves? If you keep bringing it up, does that help them see it better? They just get madder and madder at you, and they get blinder and blinder to whatever it was they did wrong. So you just you forgive. You let it go. But if you're unreconciled, which means they don't think they did anything wrong, what that means is trust is damaged like it is in every relationship where wrong is done. But if they won't admit that they did any wrong, you, you don't have any basis on which to rebuild that trust. That's why it's unreconciled forgiveness. Still forgiveness, but it's unreconciled. Let me explain it this way. If someone steals $1,000 from you, and you go to them and say, hey, that was my $1,000. You stole it. And they say, uh-uh. I just found it. Yeah, it was in my wallet. No, I just... <laughs> no, nope, I just found it and they won't return it, and they won't admit they've done anything wrong, and they insist they've done nothing wrong, well, what do you do at that point? Well, you can keep trying to get your $1,000 back, or you can say, you know what? I'm going to cancel your debt. I'm, I'm going to forgive that. I'm going to stop prosecuting. I'm going to stop trying to get my $1,000 back. That's forgiveness. But what if they come to you and say, you know what? I'd like to loan $1,000 from you. Now we're talking about trust. You would be foolish to say, sure. Because you know what? You're never going to see that $1,000 again. Because they've displayed that they're, they don't want to admit truth about this. That's trust. What many people do is they get trust and forgiveness mixed up. And they think that forgiveness means they completely trust someone who's just wronged them. You need to forgive. You need to be kind. But you'd be foolish to trust someone that hurt you deeply and will not admit that they did anything wrong. If they insist they've done nothing wrong, you'd be foolish to trust them. Because if you keep trusting them, if you keep saying, yeah, here's another $1,000, and then you forgive that, and here's another $1,000, what you're doing is you're enabling their ignorance. You're enabling their understanding that your money is their money, and it isn't. They are stealing from you. So you don't, you don't trust until trust is, the truth has been established and trust can be rebuilt. In 1 Corinthians, it's a letter to the church in Corinth. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, confronts a man involved in uh, sexual sin with, with another woman. The man later between the writing of the first letter to the Corinthian church and the second letter, the man apparently repents of his sin, admits what he did was wrong, and asks for forgiveness. 
So now in his second letter to this church, Paul points out why it's so important to forgive this man. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11 says this. Paul says, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, what fascinates me most about this verse is how forgiveness is attached to some kind of scheme of the enemy. You know, forgiveness is a dominant feature in these two verses. You know, forgive, forgive, forgiven, forgive, on and on, five times. Why? Why forgive? In order that Satan might not outwit us. For we're not unaware of his schemes. We know what he's trying to do here. What? What scheme is Paul talking about? The scheme of getting us all tied up in conflict and bitterness and missing the grace of God. Because if they don't forgive this man, the focus is going to shift from God and this man to them and this man and the problem between them, to which Satan will say, perfect. We just want everybody fighting with each other and nobody thinking about God. Satan knows that we're all going to stand before God in the end. His scheme is to get us to never figure that out or to distract us from that fact. And I think this is his number one scheme, is is to create confusion and distraction by generating relational smoke screens. You know what a smoke screen is? You know, in battle, smoke screens are used to fill the battlefield with smoke so you can't see where the enemy is can't see what's really going on. And when two people fight, when they argue, when they get upset with each other, they generate all kinds of emotional smoke. About all they can see is the one they're upset with. God? They're not even thinking about God. They're just so furious with this person. So if Satan can make things personal between us and somebody else, when actually the real big problem is between us and God, Mission accomplished. That's a win in his book. And that's why Satan is constantly inciting us to fight, to pick at each other, to get angry with each other, and then to hold on to bitterness. As I said, I think that's his number one scheme. So Paul says, stop it. In order that Satan might not trick us, might not outwit us, and see too late that all of this is just smoke. It's a distraction. It's real, but it's a distraction. This is why forgiveness is so important, because forgiveness is the great smoke dissipator. It's the big fan, the industrial-sized fan that just blows smoke off the battlefield. So what is being said here is get out of the way. Forgive. Just get out of the way. So this person has a chance to See, what's really important is they're going to stand before God one day, just like you and I will. You know, the moment this life is over, I don't know, but my guess is in the presence of Jesus Christ, we're not even going to be able to remember all the wrong that people did to us. I really don't think I'm going to be standing before Jesus and said, okay, Jesus, I got 15 people I need to talk to you about here. Make sure you're dealing justly with them. I I just really don't think that's going to be the top thing on my mind. But now, some days, it's almost all I can think about. 
When we stand before God, all that's going to matter will be what we've decided about Jesus and his amazing grace for us. So let's get out the big industrial-sized fan of forgiveness and blow away the smoke. Every time we forgive, we reduce the chance that we're distracting someone from God. Because if we don't forgive, what we're really saying is, it's all about me. You should, you're standing before me when really, no, it's all about God. We're going to stand before God. So in the words of Jesus, Father, forgive them because they're clueless. They, they don't know what they, they're doing. Let's pray. Father, we would prefer justice. And that's because we're thinking about what other people deserve, not what we deserve. And we are so grateful for your forgiveness, for your grace. And we've seen some of the masterpieces of other people and some in our own lives of what your grace can do. Not only the forgiveness, but how you can redeem the wrong that's been done. So I pray particularly for those that our hearts are embittered towards, that we struggle with. God, I pray you'd help us to forgive them again and again and again. To get out those bolt cutters and to be free. Help us, we pray, and we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.